Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <laughs> So, and hello, and welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast. And thank you to everyone who came out to Cinema City last month for the Grindhouse Double Bill with screenwriter and guest Justin Stanley. It was a great night. Uh, Please go back and listen to my interview with Justin last month when we discussed Misery. Also, I was lucky enough to be invited to be on Kim C's The Underrated Stephen King Podcast last month. Please check that out. And Kim has kindly offered to be on my show next month when we discuss 11-22-63. Or I suppose uh, she's American, she calls it 221163, but we'll, we'll, we'll iron that out in the edit. Which is a more recent King novel with a lot of fans, as I'm sure you all know. And it goes without saying, please like, subscribe, rate and review both of these podcasts on wherever you find podcasts from. However, today we're going back to a classic King with the short story Survivor Type. Written in 1977, published in the anthology Terrorist in 1982, and most famously anthologized in Skeleton Crew in 1985. It's a short, sharp shock of a story about Dr. Richard Pine, who relates his life from impoverished boyhood to successful surgeon, through to his fall from grace for malpractice, and his last-ditch attempt to stay on top, namely smuggling a lot of heroin on a cruise ship. The cruise ship crashes, however, leading Pine to find himself shipwrecked on an island with his own sharp knife, a lot of heroin, and increasingly sharp hunger. It's a fan favourite, a real blood and guts story, and I'm delighted to say that joining me to chew it over is Ali Wilkes. Not Annie Wilkes, as I'm probably going to call her a couple of times during this interview, sorry. And she's a writer of one of my favourite books of last year, the Antarctic exploration novel All the White Spaces, and the upcoming Where the Dead Wait. Welcome, Ali. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I love to talk about Survivor Type because it's a story that's absolutely haunted me my entire life. Well, that's that's probably a good place to start. I mean, when did you uh, first read it? Was it like a, a completely inappropriate uh, young age? Probably, yes. I was almost certainly far too young to read it. I can remember the copy of Skeleton Crew I had. It seemed very, very thick, very, very chunky. It was bigger than most other books I'd read up to that point. And I remember uh, taking it away on a weekend. I think my family went to a music festival or something. And I remember sharing the reading of it with my older brother in a way that will no doubt horrify all book lovers everywhere. So please, um, hands over your ears if you're the sensitive sort. We simply ripped it in half so that one person could continue reading the end and the other person could start from the beginning. So that was uh, my first experience with Skeleton Crew, an absolutely amazing collection of tales of which I have so many favourites, but also my first uh, experience with Survivor Type. That's absolutely brutal. That's that's probably the most sickening thing we'll hear today in a, a story about self cannibalism. So thank you. I, I'm I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I know that so many people. Um, if it helps at all, I now have a lovely hardback edition of Skeleton Crew bound up in an omnibus with different seasons, which together makes for an absolute 
tomb of a book that might that as brick. well double up as a chunky yoga block and in fact it <laughs> has several times that's lovely so uh of all the stories um what was it about survivor type that most stuck you with you was it kind of the the most obvious aspects of it the, the kind of the grand guignol the kind of the absolute um visceral nature of it i think for me it was the psychological aspects whilst there is a huge amount of disgusting content in that story. I love the fact that it opens with the little vignette um, of medical school saying that more or less in the end, with all surgeries and all procedures, it comes down to this, how badly does the patient want to survive? And I think that's a fascinating way to start the story because it really sets the scene. And the story turns back to that question many, many times over its short run. I personally am very obsessed with survival horror and doomed expeditions and things going wrong in the remote places of the world. And what I like about that entire genre of fiction and nonfiction is what it tells us about the human will to survive. And to have a story that really starts with that as the stark question and take it to its terrible and horrible conclusion the way survivor type does but was just absolutely catnip to me even from that young age it's a it, it's kind of a literary exercise isn't it because it does strip away everything that people would worry about in their day-to-day -day lives whether you know people like them or not office politics going to work getting a job raising a family it is essentially about that central issue of uh, what would you do to survive isn't it it's it's, it's quite a fascinating genre of books and one with you know quite a quite a long history isn't it no. you know, it goes right back to like robinson crusoe would be the most obvious one i mean did you see this as part of a literary tradition i think all survival horror draws on the same sort of psychological literary tradition the idea that in extreme situations either the very best of humanity is on show or the very worst of humanity is on show and the protagonist slash reader slash narrator must pick their team, so to speak. Um, so I think it does have a, a continuity with adventure literature such as um, Robinson Crusoe, I think maybe probably also Treasure Island. And of course, you trace it right through um, to a heart of darkness, that sort of thing. Um, all stories about things going wrong and or people in very terrible remote places. Um, but very preoccupied really with the inner self. What does that place make of you? What does that situation make of you? Yeah, this 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 story, I I read it when I was a kid like yourself and I've kind of read it a couple of times in, in adulthood. And I was reading it now and, and um, this is the first time it reminded me very strongly of, have you read, um, you probably have, Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Ooh, I, d I think that might be one of the few Joseph Conrads that I have not read. Um, it always reminds me a little bit of Falk, which is um, a very curious Conrad story in that it seems to be entirely preoccupied with marriage and social woes and um, the mores of its time. And then towards the end, it unleashes this blistering tale of subantarctic cannibalism. Um, <laughs> but no, I didn't think I've encountered Nostromo. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, if you read that, I'll read Folk, because that sounds absolutely incredible. Thank yes. you. <laughs> uh, in Nostromo, you have um, a character, a lot like uh, Richard Pine in this book, uh, a chap called Martin Decoud, who's left to 
look after a a cache of uh, smuggled silver. And he's a very civilized man, a very he's a journalist, very much at home in, in society and civilization. And he undergoes again this stripping away of the the outer person to get to the inner person, and is found wanting eventually. Spoiler yeah. alert. Uh, so, h- how do you think this relates to um, our guy, uh, Doctor Richard Pine, who is who is the protagonist of Survivor Type? Because we talked about um, the best and the worst in humanity being uh, brought out from these situations. He's he's kind of the worst to begin with, isn't he? He's, uh, he hasn't well, got much further to go. <laughs> he is. I think it's also a fascinating story in that it takes ostensibly an incredibly unlikable protagonist and yeah. then places him in situations of such extreme horror that you can't help but feel empathetic for him. Um, so uh, as you set out in the intro, he is um, sort of come up from nothing. He's a self-made man. He's become this surgeon, but a crooked surgeon. He has become a surgeon who sells uh, drugs, st- sells prescription pads, and very horribly, uh, given the theme of the story, actually has a scam running in which he performs not quite necessary operations mm. on willing patients so that they may then benefit from the drugs that he then has the excuse to prescribe them. Um, and it's something that rereading it for this podcast, I found even more salient today with what we know about America's addiction crisis, you know, and the... Um, prevalence of shows such as Dope Sick and uh. the legacy of the Sackler family. So that that sort of all makes it feel very fresh and very modern. And he's a very sort of modern kind of villain in that respect in what he does. But what happens in Survivor Type, of course, is that this totally unlikable person is put in a situation where he can't win. That there's no one he can impress. There's no way he can slither out of the situation. There's no way he can use his contacts or his wiles or his confidence tricks. He's left with the absolute, as you say, bare essentials. And in that, it's a situation of such horror that you can't help, I think, but root for him a little, a little certainly, by the end. That was one of my questions, is uh, do you empathise with uh, Pine? Because... I think there is a temptation to do that, but he—he he is. I mean, essentially, the story is about a man who makes every wrong decision in his life. He always <laughs> takes, you know, he's—it's he, always the easy way. It's always like the the worst thing he can possibly do until he's put in a position where necessity takes over. And yeah, it's—I I almost empathize with him, but but then because the whole story is half a story about survival on this island. And half a story about his life. The fact that he never looks back with any degree of objectivity, like his last thoughts are of his father, but it's not saying, oh, you know, I kind of forgive you, or, you know, I realize that you were just a guy going through something terrible. It's always like, well, you were always a schmuck, and uh, now, now I'm dying. So it, he never gets that moment of um, redemption, I think, because it's all about the self. It's all about what serves him even his own death is a question of him quite literally serving him <laughs> to him <laughs> were you waiting to make that joke <laughs> no that just came to me astonishingly amazing amazing <laughs> it's the ultimate narcissism isn't it to yeah. eat yourself <laughs> and it's an idea that um yeah because 
as as it's it's said in the book, it is just a question of stored energy yeah. and a will to survive. Yeah. And you're stripped down to that, but then you have nothing else going on. I think that is the ultimate tragedy of the book. Yeah. That even if he had been rescued at that point, he hasn't learned anything. He's probably irretrievably insane at this point, do you think? I would say almost certainly irretrievably insane. But I um, differ from you, I think, in that I see perhaps the faintest glimmer of a recognition that his self-serving ways have brought him nothing but evil. Um, because throughout his flashback narrative, he talks very vividly about this poor neighborhood that he grew up in. I think it's uh, somewhere, I think it might be Brooklyn. I'm not entirely Little sure. Italy. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And he yeah. talks very vividly about the sort of people one would find there, the sort of characters one would meet. And it's always with this sort of thinly disguised contempt. Right up until, I think, there's a point towards the end of the story in which he says something like, I shouldn't have left the neighborhood. Uh, and I think maybe it's wishful thinking on my part because I want to find a glimmer of good in him, a glimmer of hope for his redemption. But I sort of think Stephen King might have distilled into that line or that last mention of the neighborhood a sort of wistful poignancy that puts his character just maybe that little tiny shade closer to grey than to full-on dark. Mm. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. And it's it's not... Um, I didn't enjoy seeing him suffer. I don't really think this is a, a, a story about um, karma, essentially. I think it's a story about phenomenal uh, bad luck, perhaps particularly when he breaks his uh, ankle in a, a compound fracture while chasing a seagull. That's a, a really gruesome moment, isn't it? it was a... <laughs> he has the worst luck. He really has the worst luck. But he has that will to survive, which is, I suppose, quite impressive. I mean, the first thing, I think on like day two or three, he kills a seagull and eats it raw, right. which is perhaps something that, I don't know, I should... It's, it's an odd question to ask, but would you consider doing that two days in, or would you be more, uh, perhaps, squeamish about these things? Did, did you? We, we very rarely get the opportunity to know how we would react to these circumstances, I realise. Oh, I think so, definitely. There's a um, podcast that I very much like, which has come to the end of its run now, but there are lots of episodes stored out there. It's called Casting Lots Pod, and it is the world's only all-survival cannibalism podcast. Oh, I'm going to make a note of that. It, it's, it's, it's majestic. It's majestic. I've, um, I was a guest on the last season. But uh, one of the running jokes coming, I think, from the raft of the Medea was um, exactly how many days is it acceptable before you resort to survival <laughs> cannibalism? How many days after the ship goes down is it before you start thinking your crewmates look tasty? I think there's one case in which it's something like three or four days, which I think <laughs> is just, it's just phenomenal. That's... Um, that's that's really some balls, isn't it? Yeah, but if you'd skip breakfast that morning, then maybe well, then I could kind of package, understand it. Yes. It's an extra day, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, exactly. Good. And I do find that when reading Survivor Type, one, one of the things that pleased me is that because he is very precise about days and times, right uh. up until the end, at which point everything breaks down, you can plot day by day how long he's been on this island. And by the denouement, um, which possibly represents his death or possibly represents a totally irreversible sanity slip, 
it's only been about 28 days. No. And that's how long it has taken for him to, spoiler alert, chase lots of seagulls, amputate one foot, amputate another foot, take off his earlobes, uh, and then and then progress to his hands. I was wondering if you'd had the chance... Um leading up to this podcast to watch the uh, uh, the the, the uh, TV version of Survivor Type. There was an animated adaptation of it a couple of years ago as part of the Creepshow banner. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's very, it doesn't hold back. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. But to me, I think the success of this book is, it is, sorry, is that it, it, you don't really see anything. It's all in the mind. It is one of those things that's more about suggestion, particularly that last line, yeah. which is he's eating his own hand. I mean, I, would you would you want to see like a? Do you need to see these images? Do you think? I mean, it's so deeply suggestive, and it's so deeply um, imbued with total madness—the ah. idea of a mind eating itself. Um, which, as I looked back through Skeleton Crew, I was interested to find that the word auto cannibalization also, of course, pops up in the jaunt. The mm-hmm. idea of the mind devouring itself, whereas here, of course, we have the body devouring itself. But I think the way it's written is beautiful because it represents someone so deeply in the throes of coming apart that everything they say is laced with this sort of trippy horror. Personally, because I am an absolute ghoul, I do <laughs> like to read about the nitty gritty of survival cannibalism, and I do like to know horrible details like where you get the most flesh and what the role of the hand is in survival cannibalism and stuff like that how one breathes sea lice on the corpses of your dead comrades you know that sort of thing i like to read about that very much in non-fiction but it strikes me that if any more details were, were given here it would ruin the story's very sort of open and very tantalizing ending hmm it's a fascinating point, and uh, yeah, I'm interested to hear you compare it to uh, the jaunt because the jaunt is also about somebody else who makes a really yes. bad decision <laughs> and is effectively stranded in time and space rather than on an island no, no, no. and goes mad because of it. That idea he's, of he's only young, though. I think we can forgive the <laughs> protagonist of the jaunt so much easier than we can um, this doctor. Um, well, young and young and very stupid. Young and entirely stupid after he's just had it laid out to him what the difficulties might be of staying awake during the jaunt. Um, yes, I actually found just looking at my three favourite stories from Skeleton Crew, they all, I think, have, speak to this survival horror under theme. And that's, of course, survivor type. The jaunt, um, which is, I would say, sort of space survival horror. You know, the the idea of the infinite void of space. Absolutely. And then the raft, ah. which is repeatedly referenced in the idea that no one knows they are out there. No one knows these people are out there on the raft. There's no hope for rescue. They might have a winter custodian coming by in a month's time or whatnot. But right up until that point, they're on their own. Oh, and. Um, I found that very intriguing, actually, that when I was younger, those would definitely have been the three stories I'd have picked out of this book. And I don't know, maybe some, gosh, 25 years on or so, those are exactly the same stories I would pick out again as best representing what I like to read and what I like to write. Well, that, that, that does bring me on to my next question. 
Um, is it too much to say that these books have been an influence on your own writing? Because um, all the uh, all the white spaces here, fascinating book, and it deals with a lot of those same themes. It deals with the idea of isolation. It deals with the idea of what you would do to survive. It also deals with the idea of um, identity as well. It's like who we actually are and what that actually means to us. You know, the, so the character, um, Jonathan, um, the story he tells himself becomes a story he lives by, isn't it? Yes. And I th I, that's what eventually keeps him, well, I'm not, not going to ruin the book, but uh, it eventually decides his fate. Uh, so do, do, you, do you look back and see these influences on your writing now? I think it must have influenced my writing. I think more objectively, I would point towards the things you've mentioned as being the central thesis of most polar exploration literature, certainly from the heroic age. Um, I've always been deeply fascinated by um, Scott Shackleton, the book written by Apsley Cherry Garrard on Scott's expedition, The Worst Journey in the World. And these sort of works all have at their core the concern with what makes you who you are. How do you determine who you are once all the niceties of civilization have been um, stripped away? And how those core qualities will get you out of a tight spot down south? So I think it's the themes that I would eventually go on to write about in all the white spaces were very much drawn from the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. But looking back at books that I have, you know, loved throughout my life, um, often they've had these elements of adventure, remoteness, um, young men struggling against the elements, young men struggling to prove themselves either to themselves or maybe even to a father figure. Mm, that's fascinating. I, I, yeah, I, I, I like that. And one of the reasons I really liked um, All the White Spaces was because I'm also... Oh, I read a lot about Shackleton, about Scott, and uh, the Cherry Grad book is one of my absolute favourites. Oh, and I, I think there's, I think that they're, they're, they've kind of been done a disservice in our perception of them, because I think they are seen as kind of very, perhaps they're kind of seen as very solid, dependable, like heroic types. But when you actually read a lot of the contemporary accounts, I mean. Um, I, I think somebody referred to Scott as, as crying more than any other man he'd ever met. Yes, and they were very complex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're very complex people who were drawn to these spaces, not because of some perhaps slightly Victorian notion of conquering the whole world for the empire, but perhaps for more um, nebulous and uh, complex reasons, which is, again, what I really liked about your book in this creation of this figure, um, Australis. He's on, who is kind of the Scott Shackleton figure in your book, just for the listeners. He is kind of very heroic in a way, but then he has this rich complexity to him. How did you go about kind of reconciling, like writing a good adventure story with creating these complex characters? I, I found, interestingly enough, that it sort of did itself. In that once you're steeped, as you say, with all these sort of narratives from that heroic age, you start to realise they're actually very, very dark uh, and very, very complicated. And they're full of these very vividly drawn characters. Um, so obviously in the worst journey from the in the world, for example, 
you get pages and pages of nothing but character sketches of the men on the expedition. And then when he goes, when Cherry goes off on his winter journey, you get to know uh, Birdie and Bill better than you've ever known anyone in your life before, and certainly better than Cherry has ever known anyone before. And so I found that in the sort of story I wanted to tell, which would necessarily be a story of people making really stupid decisions and getting picked off one by one, it was quite easy to weave in the character work at the same time because you've got to think about what sort of people went down south and also what sort of people would make these bad decisions and why would they make them? You know, is it hubris? Is it pride? Is it genuine lust for adventure? Is it a desire to advance science? Is it a desire to prove oneself? There are all these sort of complex reasons. There's class bubbling away as there are so often in that sort of era of British stories. There are all these different sort of complexities going on. And then I found that when I added in the additional layer of it being an expedition immediately after the First World War, all those traumas and all those sort of issues and psychological defects, essentially, really sort of bubbled up and created something I could use to tell a story of great, great hubris, but also, I think, in some cases, great sacrifice. I also think there's an element of um, the, well, I suppose at the time it would have been contemporary, the, the idea of the Freudian death wish as well. Yeah. Because I'm reading... Um, Are you reading Nicholas got... Royal on the Uncanny? No, I, I have, but not at the moment. I'm reading the um, British Library Tales of the Weird book about polar horrors. Yes, I've recently finished that. I loved it. I loved it. And I've just finished reading The Captain of the Pole Star by Arthur Conan Doyle. My very favourite is... story. Incredible book. And again, it's like that idea of this this captain who goes out there essentially to, to die due to guilt and all that stuff. And it, it's, it's just a... Yeah. I suppose that is a temptation for writing a story like that is you can put anything on those great white canvases, can't you? Anything. It, it, can, it can mean anything to anybody. Because, I mean, Cherry has this idea of getting a few penguins' eggs. <laughs> and it seems absurd when you kind of think about what he went through to get that. And you kind of think there must be something else going on there if, beyond this somewhat arbitrary nature hike. There must be something else he's looking for. So, I mean, so, so to get back to you writing this book, had you always wanted to write something set at the pole? I think so. I had always wanted to write something. And when it came time for me to sit down and start writing novels, I wow. threw around a couple first um, that, you know, maybe will one day get resurrected, maybe will one day not. But then when I wanted, I felt like it was time to do something in earnest. I sat down and I thought, what am I absolutely obsessed with what would I mind not spending three four years of my life with because if there's anything I would say to a budding writer it is by god write what you love because you're going to have to read the damn thing so many times that if your heart isn't in it you will end up thoroughly sick of yourself so I sat down and I thought about what I loved and what I loved was um the heroic age of Antarctic exploration um the First World War, sort of war stories, trench stories, that sort of thing. Um, survival horror, as you know, elements of like exploration horror and the supernatural. And I sat down and looked at those elements and thought, yes, there's something to be done that can put them all together. Well, another thing you didn't mention that I, I 
that was kind of really striking to me in the book was also your um, protagonist is a, a trans man, which yeah. is, uh, was that like, um, where, at what point did that become part of the plotting? Very early on, really, um, because I knew that I wanted to tell a story about the sort of the masculinity of the era, you know, the, the way in which these men going out into the wilderness and being stuck in these claustrophobic, terrifying environments was very like, sorry, was very similar between the Antarctic and the trenches, of course. You've got that continuity of embattled masculinity that that sort of era represented and also the chipping away of it you know the the discovery of what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder which at the time was called shell shock and how um how men fit into the post-world post-war world and things like that so i wanted it very much to be about masculinity and explorers and what happens if you fail in this thing that you have set up as the test of your own masculinity so I wanted the viewpoint character to be someone who could speak to that, but from the outside, someone who could give the reader a way in, someone who wasn't himself already slap bang in the middle of it, enmeshed in it, it's his birthright, etc. So it had to be someone who hadn't fought, hadn't gone off to the wars. And one way to do that, of course, would have been to make the protagonist a girl, and I considered that at some great length. and. It didn't quite deliver me what I wanted. It didn't quite deliver me that yearning for a place in this world of men. Um, it, it sort of had this disconnect. And it also, given Jonathan's particular personality as a brave and stubborn little shit, it didn't make sense that he wouldn't have tried to run away and join his brothers um, at war or do any number of other extremely stupid things. So I couldn't make him a cis man who was simply too young to go to war. Um, so I couldn't make him a girl and I couldn't make him a cis man who was too young to go to war. So I I almost meshed the two concepts in my mind and ended up coming out with um, a young man who has been assigned female at birth, is very much at odds with that assigned gender identity, would have wished to go to war, but obviously couldn't for a, a number of reasons and now thinks that this is his final roll of the dice. Mm. It really, it's really interesting. It really does offer a very unique perspective, particularly in a story like this, which is about a particularly masculine endeavor, right. I, I, I would say. Um, I suppose I, I kind of have to ask, it's a bit of a weasel question, but um, did you consult trans men before writing this? Did you feel like you had... Uh, to be very careful about writing this is I wanted it to seem both believable and authentic um I I really didn't want any bits in it where either the casual reader would say oh hang on he's about to be you know in inverted commas discovered as a trans man here I didn't yeah. want any bits at all in which a trans reader might feel that I'd done their identity a disservice or misrepresented Jonathan or really not got um, his whole experience down on the page. So it wasn't quite such a matter of being careful as it was being meticulous. I wanted to make sure everything I wrote and everything I did and everything I put in was filtered through this lens. And the way I did that was of course, by a lot of pre-reading and 
thinking about it again and again. But then even before I submitted it to an agent, I hired three sensitivity readers or authenticity readers, as I actually prefer to refer to them, because I think when you say sensitivity readers, the Daily Mail Brigade stuff, (laughs) their pearls and going, oh, you're so sensitive. Um, But I hired three authenticity readers, each one with a very different background and a very different perspective on trans masculinity and a very different set of skills that they could bring to the book. And I said to them, you know, have at it. Tell me what I'm not doing that I should be. Tell me what I'm doing that I shouldn't be, you know, pick it apart. And I got three extremely useful insights at that basis that really helped me shape the book and make a lot of decisions about Jonathan's character. And then I was very, I was lucky enough to work with excellent editors um, at Titan and um, Emily Bestler Books. I worked with um, Kat Camacho and Lara Jones, both of whom were absolutely sold on the trans aspect as being integral and who agreed that I should absolutely have a further sensitivity read once we were at line editing stage. So it actually passed through the hands of four people, uh, as well as myself, on that very particular point. That's a fascinating glimpse into the process. And um, after it was published, did you get any feedback from the community? Um, I'm happy to say I did. Um, I was tentative about how it would be received um, because no book can, I think, accurately reflect the myriad facets of trans experience. And it's always a bit of a guessing game, really, when we're dealing with not only trans experience, but trans experience in a very particular time and place that none of us have access to now. Uh I was very heartened and I was extremely pleased to see that um, a lot of uh, trans men, a lot of trans masculine readers really took the book to their hearts. And it got, I think, a, a very, very generous and welcome reception. Good. And I, I, one of the things I really liked about the book, it is kind of a, a lovely extrapolation on that trope of uh, a girl dressing as a boy yeah. to kind of have adventures, which again is that very Edwardian Victorian story. But here it's it's kind of really given a lot of depth and a lot of a lot of flesh, which I liked. It is um, um it is very much a twist on that trope, I think. I when I was growing up, one of the uh sort of slightly less Antarctic um books that really influenced me was the works of Tamora Pierce, um, who wrote um, a series of adventures about a girl called Alana, um, called The Girl Who Rides Like a Man. <laughs> and it's about a young girl who wants to be a knight and her brother wants to be a mage and they're twins. And so the solution, of course, is for them to swap places and each one go to the respective other one's harsh, incredibly harsh boarding school and see what happens. And so I really loved those books. I loved the sort of fish out of water aspect, the proving oneself aspect, all that sort of lovely adventure. And what I think I took from it are, it is of course different because Jonathan is a man and Alana uh, was written and identified at the time as a girl. Um, What I think I really liked and took from it was that whenever anyone in inverted commas discovered Alana's true identity again in inverted commas they were very matter of fact about it there was very little uh, hysteria about it within the books the other characters simply got on with it 
And mm. that was something I was very, very keen to bring to all the white spaces. The lack of any sort of forced outing narrative and the lack of any, I think, over-the-top reactions that, that didn't make sense in the type of, you know, we've just got to get on with it world that <laughs> I set up. I get it, absolutely. So uh, before we... Had, uh because we're running out of time here. Uh, a couple more questions about all the white spaces. Um, it's a meticulously researched book, uh, and I can tell you really know your stuff. But did you uh, at any point um, make, uh, uh, bite the bullet, um, make the effort, and make the long and arduous journey to uh, Portsmouth to uh, do some research? No. I kid Portsmouth. I grew up there. It's horrible. Don't bother. It's it's a really grim place. Thank you. Um, so coming up next is Where the Dead Wait. Can you tell us anything about this book without giving too much away? Gosh. Well, the uh, the cover copy is up online at the usual book pre-ordering sites, etc. So I can give away a little. Um, this one is set in the 1880s Arctic. It has dual timelines. It deals with a failed expedition to find the open polar sea, which was uh -huh. a great preoccupation of navigators around that time. Uh, essentially, the theory was that at the top of the world, where we now know there to be a sort of ever-frozen shifting ocean, there was, in fact, a ring of ice surrounding an open and balmy and almost tropical polar sea that ships could float around in and then come out the other side. So it was deemed to be a very useful na navigable passage, rather like the Northwest Passage. Uh, More fool them, as anyone who knows the history of the search for the Northwest Passage would think. So the book, um, Where the Dead Wait, deals with a failed expedition to find the open polar sea that ends in betrayal, abandonment, ship, the ship being abandoned, um, and the survivors eventually dwindling on the ice until they end up in a disgusting, overturned boat um, eating each other to survive. <laughs> Of course. Did you have fun writing it? I was going to say, this oh, looks like a blast. Oh, my word. It was so much fun. Um, so you have that doomed expedition and its protagonist, William Day, who is a young British naval officer, very much out of his depth. He returns from that expedition, so he survives, but he returns in absolute disgrace. Um, wow. No one is keen on the fact that he has uh, killed and eaten his own men. Except that 13 years later, he is given an opportunity to go back to the Arctic in search of his former second-in-command, Jesse Stevens, who is a complex character with a lot of uh, rumours, and uh, he casts a big shadow not only over polar exploration but over Day's own life. So it's the story of William Day going to look for Jesse Stevens and discovering that the past isn't very easy to put behind oneself. Now, without giving too much away, does it have the the supernatural elements that uh, are hallmarked all the white spaces? It does have supernatural elements, a very different, I think, uh, take on the supernatural. Um, but anyone who is hoping for apparitions, things that go bump in the night and so on, uh, will be glad of this book. One thing that I was able to weave in was... Um, the idea of spiritualism, which was booming around that time, both in America and in Britain. I was inspired by the real-life um, Arctic explorer, Elisha Kent Kane, 
who was, oh, he was an exceptional man, a tiny apparently, you know, <laughs> under five foot. And he was so brave and he did these amazing journeys, including ones in which, you know, he gets stuck in the ice, he has to abandon his ship, he has to manhaul. Basically, he's the Shackleton of the 1800s Arctic. Um, but there's very considerable rumour and quite some solid evidence, I think, that he married in secret um, Margaret Fox, the, one of the three famous Fox sisters who helped popularise table wrapping as a method of spirit um, communication in New York. So you've got this sort of very sort of romantic ideal of the polar explorer and you've got his spiritualist wife both in uh, their own way, exploring these other worlds and exploring the unknown. So I was delighted to be able to weave that into the novel and put a spiritualist on board William Day's ship. Um, she is searching for her lost husband, uh, Jesse Stevens, and she thinks the way to find him is by asking his dead crewmates where he's gone. Absolutely fascinating. I really can't wait for this book. Well, wh when is it coming out? Do we know? It's coming out in December 2023 in the States. I don't yet have any news on a UK release, but obviously okay. anyone wanting to find out about that can just keep in touch via my social media feeds. And just a simple yes or no, do you think you're going to write more books set at the polls? Because I really hope it's a yes. Yes, comma, although maybe not, <laughs> maybe not immediately. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> every now and then we need a little sunshine in our lives. <laughs> exactly. So the two questions I always ask all my guests in uh, in, in, in the finale. Uh, firstly, what are you reading at the moment? At the moment I am reading... Oh, I don't have it with me. Um, yes, I do. It's a book called The River of Doubt by Candice Milliard. It is a non-fiction book about an expedition by ex-president Theodore Roosevelt down a tributary of the Amazon in 1914. So, Is that the one we took with his son? Yes, it is. His son, yeah. the, the incredibly named Kermit. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Louis Bayard wrote a fictional account of that. Uh, it's called a Roosevelt's Beast, I think. But you'll, uh, we'll check that one. We'll fact check that. But it's well worth a look as well if you're interested. Oh, in that. See, and I must look that up. And secondly, um, what is a book you would recommend to people that you think does not get enough love, that uh, does not get talked about enough, that flew under people's radars, that you want more people just to read? Gosh, let me think. Okay. Um, I think a book that came out, I think last year, that flew under many people's radar was this excellent uh, gothic novel called The Haunting of Las Lagrimas by W.M. Cleese. It's out in the UK from Titan Books, and the setup is just incredible. Uh, it tells the tale of Ursula, who is a very headstrong English woman obsessed with gardening. She has broken from her family, and she is working in Buenos Aires as a sort of undergardener. It's 1913, and she meets a mysterious man who asks her to come and be head gardener on a newly restored estate deep in the middle of the Argentine Pampas. She accepts this uh, because it suits very much her ambition and her love of nature. But once she arrives on this creepy old estate, she finds the garden completely overgrown, uh, traumatic things happening in the trees, and it plays out very much as the shining in the Argentine pampas uh, immediately before the First World War. It's incredible. Very, very gothic. 
Well, I've got to add that one to the list. It sounds perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for talking today, uh, Ali. And um, All The White Spaces is available now and Weather Dead Wait hopefully will be coming out towards the end of the year, if not the beginning of next year, and sounds absolutely wonderful. And we'll see you all uh, next month where we'll probably be talking to Kim C from the underrated Stephen King podcast about 11.22.63. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast or wherever you can get a podcast from. And we'll see you all soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye. If you don't eat yourself, you Thank you very much for joining us on another edition of the Constant Reader Podcast with me, your host, Richard Shepard. I'd like to give a special thanks to Dr. Linda Shepard for research and Stephen Leslie Parks for technical production. You can write to us at the Constant Reader Podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at the Constant Reader Podcast. And please feel free to rate, review, like, and subscribe to this podcast on wherever you can find podcasts. And we'll see you again next month for another deep dive into the work of Stephen King. Thank you very much.